people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Well, hello, Helen, and thank you for the great opportunity to actually turn the microphone onto you for a change. I am indeed. so sure that indeed, hey? <laughs> I was like, interview, interrogation, I'm not quite sure what this is going to be. <laughs> oh, I feel safe in your hands. And, and then oh. you may interrogate and ask many questions, <laughs> things that I wouldn't necessarily think to share myself. Oh, indeedy, indeedy. And that's a chance for, I think, a lot of people who know you, who have been interviewed by you, to get a chance to hear a little bit more about Helen, see sort of like the different chapters or the different stories that create your own self unlimited. Sure. Um, and that has come to, you know, sit here as the foundations that's brought us to this point. So, um, so that's terrific. And I think the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what is it about... Is there something about you that people wouldn't know or would be surprised to know? When people ask me a question like that, there's something that jumps to my mind. It's not connected to the self-unlimited story, but I'm kind of proud about it too, which is probably one of those reasons why I'm willing to share about it. So I have Māori heritage. I come from New Zealand, and with this Māori heritage, I have something called a whakapapa. Now, those who are listening might be thinking, oh, did Helen just say a dirty word? Not at all. That's a Māori word, and that refers to genealogy. And so um, I have a whakapapa that can be recorded back 21 generations to a Māori ancestor named Pakia. And that actually is an official whakapapa with, you know, my dad, his, um, his father, his mother, and then it goes up all through these Māori lines. And so it means I'm actually an official member of the Ngāi tribe of the South Island of New Zealand. Wow. Helen, that is something that a lot of people wouldn't know. And I've got to say, you mentioned that the other day in a post, and that was the first time I actually knew about it too. Keep right. that little secret. Um, so, so you're proud of it. So what is it about this lineage that, that um, fills you with pride? There's a couple of elements to it. One of it is it is been coming to a state of understanding and appreciating it because you, if you saw me, you would look and think, Helen's white skin and blue eyes. Where's this Māoriness? It's not actually there. And it in some ways wasn't there in the family history and narratives because my grandfather, who looked very Māori, and as a boy, he got called that nasty N-word and he experienced a lot of racial discrimination. Mm. And so consequently, he kind of uh, hid the Māori qualities in his life. And then his son, my father, blue-eyed, blonde, um, didn't really have that as part of his narrative. And so when it came to my generation, it was kind of like, this is this weird kind of thing that maybe some family member. So part of the pride has been about appreciating it is something that was not there, but now has been revealed and that I can appreciate it. The other part of it is in understanding about it, you start to find all these connections and you see the possibilities and that you are the product of many conversations and many things that have gone on previously 
to actually be the living person that you are on the face of the planet today. And so why not be proud? Why not be the fact that, you know, it's not quite survival or thrival story, but I am here. And it's because of those people that went before me. And particularly in New Zealand, um, Māori in the last 30 years, I haven't lived in New Zealand for 20 years now, has been far more integrated and accepted as part of society. But here living in Australia, in some ways, it maybe it gives me a bit of a quirkiness or a standout factor because people are like, oh, the Māori, we're not really connected to the Aboriginal story of what's going on here. What is this Māori thing that you speak of, Helen? So yeah, part of that pride has maybe been a conscious choice to say, there are many things that make up me and many stories that I've maybe not known or have forgotten that I have decided to claim and own. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily embody because I'm not um, culturally connected to all the protocols of being Māori, but there's an element where I can say ethnically, I am legally entitled to be known as a New Zealand Māori and I'm a member of a tribe. You know, that's a bit of an unusual thing. We all might wish we were members of tribes, but I literally am the member of a tribe in Iwi. <laughs> I love that. And I think within that, Helen, is this, um, you know, for, for someone who has known you for a while, and I would say, you know, this, um, connection to possibilities that you talked about and to stories is something that I always admire your capacity you know for that and for holding that for others for sharing it with others um, particularly around your capacity for knowledge and the diversity of knowledge you know right. um, you. and and your creativity as well so so pardon me kind of goes, tell me a little bit about this thirst for knowledge um, and how it's come about. I actually think I probably came hardwired default settings from the factory with this. <laughs> and I, I think of uh, being a child who loved books and loved reading. And my parents weren't people who had um, higher education. They didn't go beyond that. So, but they did, my mother did have a love of books. And I have this very early memory of being about nine years of age. And we're talking about a period in the mid-70s where the local library closed at like a seven o'clock on a Friday night and, you know, wouldn't open until the Monday. And my mother going to the librarians and saying, please, could you give my daughter an extension? Can she get more than two books? She will be finished those by eight or nine o'clock Friday night and she will be bored the rest of the weekend. Can she please take out more books than the, the number two? And I really appreciate that she did that, that she had, I mean, for her, I think it was partly, I can't handle a child being bored all weekend, but the fact that there was a recognition of that books were something that were valuable and I think probably I was reading more fiction books than non-fiction per se. I also have a similar memory around that time when I would go to a friend's house and if they were slightly boring me I'd go look at their bookshelf and it's almost like I don't want to go play outside I don't want to be with you it's like all books, what have you got here? I want to read them. And I would be far happier sitting in a corner at a friend's house reading their books than, you know, jumping on the trampoline or doing something with them. So I think there's probably something quite hardwired and, like I say, that factory default setting of a curiosity in, in the world. And one of the things that I particularly uh, am attracted to about fiction books is there's an ability to get lost in the narrative, to be exposed to worlds and experiences that you don't know. So I grew up in a town in rural New Zealand, population about 1,500. 
And while it's now a very popular tourist town, as a child, I don't have memories of lots of people coming through from different nationalities. So my world was literally, you know, the 1500 people that I might have known. And it actually happened to be the town. My father wasn't born there, but his father was. And my ancestors, my Pākehā ancestors, actually were one of the original settlers of that town in the 1860s. So there was a kind of a, a bubble, a cultural bubble. So reading and books, particularly at a time when television wasn't very prevalent and not in our household, books just gave me this opportunity to whole ways of thinking and what was going on in the world. Mm. And I, I find what's absolutely lovely in hearing that when I kind of contrast it to my experiences growing up I think you know you talk about a community that was pretty much the same yet you know the books opened up your world and you were you know um ferocious reader mm -hmm. um and then I think and and that you came to loving knowledge and learning and I I sit there and I go I had like the opposite experience you know right. I had the experience of such diversity, a house full of diversity, a house full of people yelling and, you know, arguing all the time over, you know, world affairs, all this sort of bit. Right. And I didn't necessarily read a lot because I was a slow reader and I have to say I'm, I'm still a little bit slow and I try to scan my way through. Um, though I spent my a lot of my time in my imagination and I liked learning stuff at school mm. um, and I would write stories of all things which I think right though over time it's just like I came to read and learn and do more mm. of that and I always came to yeah I sort of came through a different path but I came to a point that with you we share this passion for knowledge and learning um, mm. as well and creativity so I think isn't it wonderful how if different roads lead to a point and yes. um and why I might say there's factory settings there, I do sometimes wonder whether because that happened at that kind of, you know, stage when they say like seven or eight is those very formative years in a child's life, because that was happening, whether that kind of, I don't know, laid down synapses in my brain that made more connections than maybe the average human being, because I'm known in my family and my friends for having a very good memory. And I kind of think, so again, was I, did that come out, you know, when I was born or is that something that got developed by all of this reading kind of activity, which maybe increased a kind of capacity. And I remember there was a movie in the 1980s called Short Circuit. I don't know if you recall it. It was about this robot that was a, uh, escaped from a American manufacturing defense firm. And as it was going out into the world, it was hungry for knowledge. And it goes into this bookstore and it picks up a book and it goes flip, 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 flip. Input, input, need more input. And at the time, my siblings were like, that's Helen. That's what Helen's like. And so there's was a kind of thirst for knowledge. I do think there's probably something contextual too, that I was also grown up in an environment with quite a religious overlay. And I think that in some ways put some constraints around what I saw and understand of the world. So for me, a way to kind of push through that uh, boundary or uh, permeate that, uh, cross that boundary was to actually, you know, see books and understand different worldviews beyond what was going on immediately around me so I look at when your story when you're saying about you know worldviews and whatever I'm thinking yeah no I don't think that was happening in my house there was been probably more discussions that were related to biblical kind of stuff but for me that uh the books became a place where other stories and other worlds were going on yeah excellent um so that's that's interesting and when I think back to your your journey and your evolution 
sort of what else from those times is something that has shaped your your um, values or ideas about what you sort of bring to the world and what you want to bring to the world? Definitely the religious environment. So while I would categorize myself now as agnostic, there's something about community that happens when you have a faith based group of people. So I think something very strong about community and the value of community has come through into my adult years. I think something around serving others and and within the small environment that we're in, there were opportunities, um, some that some people might look on the outside and look and go, wow, that was very limiting for, you know, a young, hungry, intelligent female. But in other ways, it was like, wow, they let you do that. So, for example, there was a Sunday school in the church. And at one point um, in my teenage years, my father was actually a minister in the church that I grew up in. And there was a Sunday school. And at 12 years of age, I led Sunday school for two and three-year-olds. And you might look and think, wow, a 12-year-old doing that? But I look and think it was a small opportunity that created a leadership moment where I got to decide what might happen over these young lives. And, you know, just for an hour on a Sunday morning, how that might go. And so it gave me maybe my first taste of what it was to serve in a very kind of practical way. Here is a group of people. There is some kind of need. Who am I and how am I going to show up and do something for that? So that notion of serving others and finding a way to serve has probably come through very strong from that time as well. Um, I'm also the uh, eldest child of three siblings. And because my parents were very involved in the church, there was an element where I kind of had to pick up a lot more responsibility and finances were tough. And so where, for example, um, my parents were having to, their involvement in the church plus work other jobs, it meant they weren't as available as we might have hoped as parents. So I remember I was the first, when I got my driver's license at 15 years of age, it wasn't because Helen was keen to get a license. It was so that Helen could then drive her siblings around and, and take another role looking after her siblings. So it probably put me in a situation where I took on responsibility for things much earlier than many people would and that there was an expectation that it's just, that's what you do within the family. You take on these responsibilities and you uh, have commitments and you fulfill those commitments. And even to the point of like, you know, having my own first part-time job when I was 15. And because of the money too, I was reflecting over the Christmas period when I was doing some decluttering at my house. I have a sewing machine and I pulled it out of the cupboard and I thought, that sewing machine, I purchased that when I was 15 years old. It cost $500. So that was 1983. And I saved up the money from my part-time job to purchase that. And, you know, what that might teach somebody about, you know, money, having a goal, making a commitment. And, And in some ways it was quite strategic for me because it was the sewing machine was then the means to make my own clothes as well. But I look back and think now, I mean, maybe I'm sounding like an old generational person, but how many 15 year olds and I'm not even sure what that equivalent money would be, you know, 1983, $500, 2020, $5,000. You know, how many at a 15 year could save up that money from their own earnings? Um, and I didn't get pocket money to, um, yeah, purchase an item and be that kind of focused on a goal. So, and uh, focusing on a goal is important. It gives you sort of a sense of where you're headed. I kind of go, what was that? first job you had as well 
babysitting i was actually quite entrepreneurial partly maybe because of the church thing too because my mother uh had offered up my quite slavery so let's be clear about that but it's like my sister <laughs> I, and I, I would argue that <laughs> my sister and i because we were the minister's daughters you know we were seen as trustworthy and there were plenty of you know um mothers in the church that might need their children looking after so there was i was I set the fees and I negotiated with them. So my mother was very good about that. She didn't kind of say it's for free or it's at this price. So, you know, a little bit entrepreneurial. I set what the fees were. And I remember I had this crazy thing. It was like, well, for the first three hours, it's this. And then for every additional hour. So if you stayed out late and, you know, that I got to watch the television or bring my homework to your house. I don't know. It was crazy. But I was even thinking of my terms and conditions as this little babysitting entrepreneur. So, yeah, the first one was babysitting. And then at 15, I went to work in the uh one of the people in the church he had a butcher store but it was one of those modern butcheries where they were cutting the meat and putting it in pre-packs out yeah. in a store that people could come and buy the packs and so i started working out the back packing the meat and then selling the store up front so yeah from um the minute of 15 which was the legal age for part-time work right until the point i left high school at 17 and a couple of months i was working part-time in jobs in, the, in that kind of retail food industry and what did these um types of jobs actually mean to you at that time as you were doing them and experiencing these things you know when you take yourself back to that and as you're going through and living what what was that for you in those moments First of all, there was an element of like money. Thank you very much because I didn't get pocket money. So it's like, you know, if I wanted to get my hair permed or my ears pierced or have a little bit of makeup, you know, I wanted some money to do that. So having some money. The second part was it took me into an adult world because I remember the first time I went to work in the butcher store, there were three Maori guys who were there who were butchers. And then there was um, the Pākehā or the um, Caucasian guy who owned the butcher store. And there were these ladies and they were, you know, maybe 10, 15 years older than me. And I was suddenly exposed to a level of adult conversation. And, you know, it was about eye-opening to a 15-year-old girl hearing the sorts of things that adults might talk about in the back room of a butcher store. And um, then there's a sense, too, that you're in this space with these people at, to achieve a job. And it's like, you know, the meat was coming across one side of the table and it was my job to pick it up, put it on a tray, wrap it and meet certain levels of quality and do it in a certain kind of way. So it was fascinating to learn sort of process that you might get involved in. But it's kind of true that this wasn't just like any old process. It's like this meat needs to be done in a particular way so that, um, you know, it doesn't get bacteria and all those sorts of things. So it opened me up to a whole other world of things going on, which admittedly, I was a bit bored at high school. So there's a point where it's like, yay, there's high school. And then as I get to do this part-time job, which oh, well. yeah, and so it, many possibilities, right? Just well, indeed. Like and and I felt hoping. very grown up. I mean, I was hanging out with these grown-ups, which are grown-ups that I weren't um, brought up with. And, you know, there'd be conversa grown-up conversations that wouldn't happen in my house. So there was a point where part of me felt like, hmm, I've entered the adult world. And sometimes that was a bit of a, you know, because, of course, that responsibility that was already happening in my family of origin yeah. as the first, the first child, this kind of took it to a whole other level where I wasn't the top dog who knew stuff. I was the bottom of the pile and the youngest person in the rank in the room with all this stuff going on where it's like sometimes I'd feel really naive, like, I don't know how to, to behave here. I remember one of the guys asking me something about, you know, what was my favorite music or something, and part of me panicking thinking, I'm supposed to have favorite music. I don't know how to answer this question. 
blank moment. Um, <laughs> though what I will say is there's, um, there's probably less blank moments when I span through the things you've just told me and I look at where we are with um, how you've created Self Unlimited because you know, before you were talking about, you know, this sense of community, serving others, responsibility, um, yes. possibilities, right? And I kind of go, oh, wow, this seems to be a little bit of the sort of soil or the fertiliser that sits under um, Self Unlimited. And I kind of go, is that true or is there something else that sort of fits in your approach and your, your how you came about to bringing this? Well, there's possibly an element, the fact that I am a Kiwi, and for those who are listening, they might think, yeah, so Kiwi, you're from New Zealand. But what I mean by that, there's a cultural package in that word, in that one of the things that's often said about New Zealanders is that we are very innovative and uh, able to jump into unknown situations and figure out stuff. Another aspect is that because New Zealand is a country with a smaller population, I've heard a statistic that apparently... 95% of the population are employed in a business of five or less people. So it's not like this big organization experience that people might have. So you, if you are working somewhere, you learn everything. You're supposed to know everything. You are equally taking on responsibility. You don't necessarily have really strong titles about what you do and how you're going to do it. It's kind of like, what if it needs to be done? Everybody kind of pulls up their sleeves and does it. So there's a sense of that kind of agency, everybody contributing, um, which I, when I came to Australia in my, I was 30, and it's 20 years ago, people were like, so what are you? I'm like, I'm not quite sure what the title is. Oh, so have you been, you know, oh, you're like, maybe you're a business analyst. So how many years have you worked as a business analyst? And I was like, well, none. That just seems to be a title that fits the kinds of things that I've done in the past. And so there's this kind of conundrum about uh, having many skills and struggling to put a title on it. And so within that, I think there's some meta kind of skills about how to navigate situations where you don't know what you don't know. It's not like you, there was a PD. I mean, I'm trying to think of the jobs, whether in fact there was like a position description and a formal interview process that you went through, all those sorts of things that might be markers and structure and comfort to you about how things were. I don't recall much of that being my experience. So I was used to, well, I'm going to have to figure this out. And people are relying on me. And um, I've got to figure this out pretty quickly. And I've got to figure this out to a level that the people around me don't feel let down or that business can keep operating. There isn't the ability that you can't hide among the numbers. It's like, I need to do my bit. And if I don't do my bit, then it's clear to other people that, you know, I'm not contributing and that's not a good way to be. Okay. So this idea of contributing um, uh, an experience of, you know, people who find other ways of how to do things, not necessarily, you know, trying to fit the box, but kind of work differently within the box. Um, you know, when I think of one of the lines, it's like about being bold and taking responsibility to control and influence how we do work. Um, what's so important in people having the opportunity to do this right now in this time? Like, where's the where's the fuel for the for the fire to sort of step into this way of thinking? I think it's and about, being, I would say, not just yeah, yeah, this way is, of being, it's about being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It for me, this it's around that word control. 
maybe and and, and i, I kind of hesitate to use the word control because it almost sounds quite mechanistic but when there's lots going on that you don't know or that you feel uncertain about there's a point where you want something that you can count on that you can control that you can shape or have a say over and that's just part of the basic characteristic of being human we need a quality of stability and I think being an employee inside of an organization has created for many people a kind of stability it's like fourth you know some people it's like I'm so glad that I was employed because you know in our society it's like to be unemployed is to somehow be on the outer but if you're inside an organization ah you can kind of oh things are maybe settled and I'm going to get some money and I might get some training and I, I can tell people when I meet them at the weekend that I'm a such and such and I work such and such a place when that gets disrupted and you can't quite say what you are anymore or the structures around you be they conceptual temporal cognitive physical are disrupted then there's kind of a point where you that the quality of stability or sense of control gets highly disrupted but what I uh, am about with Self Unlimited is you can make choices about those things for yourself and have your own sense of that control. Whereas if you rely on an organization to do it, that's got a level of risk because other stuff can disrupt that, at which point then you're left highly disrupted. Whereas if you build those qualities and characteristics in yourself, you can take that to every organization that you work. You can show up with that in whatever situation is going on. And you are not reliant or dependent on somebody else to be doing something for you or providing that kind of structure or sense of control. Because look, the reality is there's much in our life we can't control. <laughs> it's, I'm not trying to say control everything. It's mm. of the things that you can control, know what you can control and have that sense of empowerment or confidence to make those decisions and it might be only a few small decisions but that gives you a, a position of stability and it turns out I'm going to use some bad language but here but when you've got that you can put up with a lot of shit <laughs> and look shit happens in organizations I, I, there was a period in my life it was like why do I keep choosing bad organizations? It's so good when I start there and there's so much promise and if this was going to happen and those people seemed really nice. And then at about an 18 month mark, it's like, what? This isn't working anymore. Why do I keep choosing bad organizations? And I realized actually it's not that I'm choosing bad organizations that I think what I wanted out of that organization had changed and yeah. that experience, but also shit happens in organizations. And if I'm walking around hoping for some ideal thing of like the world's all going to be wonderful and only then will I be able to feel all right, only then will I be able to feel safe or stable, then I'm putting myself in a very risky position. So what is it to then internalize and say, what stuff around me can be chaotic, but what would I hold on to or decide for myself becomes my point yeah. of stability? Yeah, and I reckon with what you've just mentioned that for me, I kind of grab onto a little bit of a sense of, you know, when we start somewhere and it comes back to this learning um, that we do and this feeds into this opportunity for self-unlimited um, growth because learning is generative, change mm. is generative. We, yes. we aren't the same person, you know, um, as much as you are hardwired at the start to read and absorb knowledge, um, there was something else within you that kind of encouraged and fueled that knowledge, you know, like you weren't yes. the kid that was beaten on the head for wanting to be better. You know, you kind of went and stepped out and did it. 
Um, and I can't, and you know, and you captured the agency around that and you had the awareness to stop and question. Um, and part of me wants to ask you, you know, given everywhere you've been, what, you know, how is it that you interact with self-mastery? It's a mix. One thing I would like to make clear to people is they might think, oh, I'm hearing Helen speak very confidently. And to your point, you know, that change is generative. I'm 52 years of age as I'm speaking to you. It was not always this case. Even at 17 or at a point where people might have thought you have that rebellious moment and you find yourself as a young adult, much of what I have arrived at has been a whole series of small cumulative steps over time. So don't be listening to this story thinking, well, when Helen said hardwired, it's like she came hardwired with this boldness, this confidence, whatever. Not at all. And maybe some of those stories will come out further in the conversation about where some of those moments were. The only thing that I can say from a mastery point of view is there seems to be something in me that thinks, okay, so that didn't work. Let me try something else. Hmm. Well, I can take that from that. Okay. Uh, right. Well, let me try something else. And so when people might even use that word, like, so tell me about bad decisions in your life or failures. I can't connect to that conversation because I can look and think at the moment in time when I am doing something, I do have a propensity for looking forward. I can look back and reflect. Sometimes I am so looking forward, I have trouble being in the moment and experiencing what's going on. There is something in me, though, that is propelling forward and thinking, what next? Now, if you talk to my mother, she would say, come and gets easily bored. And in fact, there are many school reports that have something along those lines. Like, when interested, Helen works well. So I think there's something about me that it's not necessarily where I look and go, right. I'm setting myself a five-year goal. I would like to be wonderful or the top of something. It's more a case of, I'm a bit bored. What around here is interesting or curious that I could do? And I try it. And then I think, oh, I'm done with that. Move on. I am actually a person who can reject and put a lot of things away. And then I do remember, for example, my mother being frustrated when I wanted to do dance lessons. And she got me dance lessons. And I think I did about three of the term of about 10. And then I wanted to quit. And she was like, but you never want to see anything through. And I've come to realize something about myself as, and Barbara Scher, who wrote a book called I Could Be Anything If Only I Knew What I Wanted To Be, which I thought was a brilliant title, <laughs> makes the point about there are certain kinds of people that when they are visiting a flower, to use the metaphor, they're getting the nectar out of the flower, they will stay with the flower while there's nectar there. But, you know, the bee will move on to another flower to get more nectar. And I think I'm a person who likes going from flower to flower and I will stay there while the nectar's there, which is both true from a learning point of view, but it's also true from an organizational role point of view or the products and services I offer. And it's like, you know, when I've sucked all the juice out of that or contributed whatever I can contribute, I'm ready to move on to something else. And I don't necessarily look back. And I, I, I remember we were having a conversation recently and I told you about how when I was in my early 20s, I learned how to build a computer on a course. And you kind of looked, what? You knew how to build a computer? And part of me thinks, well, yeah, but it, it's not, you know, something I've carried forward to my future. And I'm like, yes, I want to build a computer. but interesting story to tell about 30 years ago I knew how to build a computer and a Novell DOS network and for all those IT people I you know it means means I can have some interesting conversations and but it's one of those moments where I think well I mastered that but I think maybe there's a meta level too where I look and think what I know is I can jump into something try it 
learn it and then move on to something else. And I'm not necessarily thinking, oh, I needed a certificate or I needed to use it and apply it. It's, it's just probably a basic hunger and curiosity of, well, that looks interesting. I'd like to play with that and I'd like to try it. And I, I, I try it, not just in a sort of a quick thing. I might say, oh, let me really get my hands into this. But yeah, I do recognize in myself, there's a moment where I start thinking, I'm getting bored with this now. Yeah, I think the nectar's running out. Time to move to another flower. Mm, which is interesting. Um, there's a couple of things there. First, I want to ask you about, you know, this, this um, resourcefulness within you of being able to jump and move through and, oh, I've tried it and, and just keep moving on and not feeling like you're knocked back by it. But instead you're like, okay, done. I've got what I want out of it and now I can continue on because I'm sitting here going, there is a wonderful Taoist quote that says that, you know, how do you know you're done? And it's usually when you're ready to move on. And right. I've cut it short because it's very long. And yeah. blah, blah, blah. Questions to and fro from master and child sort of thing. We you can know, put that into the show notes because it sounds like a great quote. <laughs> yeah, I'll find it somewhere. But the, the punchline is like, you know, when you're done because you're ready to move on. Mm. Um, and that you're able to take, uh, if something doesn't work out, it's not a disaster. It's just you've had enough or it yeah. just didn't happen. Um, so the thing is, like, what sort of advice or encouragement do you give to others um, in how can they sort of adapt or, or take on that sort of um, way of thinking or experiencing something? This is a difficult one. I'm not actually sure I can give advice because... It's something that's so inherently natural to me. This would be like saying to somebody, so let me tell you how to breathe. <laughs> let me explain breathing to you. And it's one of those things. So when you were talking, I was thinking about, I've always been somebody, when I'm sitting back getting bored, who also then wants to do something from a change. So I, I think of another story from my teenage years. Um, my family knew or my parents would know not to come into my bedroom at night without turning on the light because chances are I rearranged the room during the day because it's like I would get bored with the status quo and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try a different configuration here. And even to the point that right now I'm living in a house that I have now lived in for the last 10 years and I've, oh, this is the longest in my entire life. I've stayed in one house and I'm ready to move on. I want out. And the, the itchiness kind of factor is really quite high. Of course, the pandemic is a terrible time to be thinking about maybe selling the house and moving on. But there is something sort of inherent in me that wants to, to move. And I also, um, I work in organizational change management. And often people go, oh, change is hard. Change is difficult. People hate change. And I look and think, uh, I don't hate change. Um, I don't find some changes difficult. So am I not human? Am I not common? And so, yeah, to come back to your question about what advice I might give, I think I'd probably fall on some around, well, is there something about what's going on that you can make a meaningful connection for? Like, is there a reason where you're looking, thinking, yeah, when I think about it, I don't really want to be here anymore. You know, whether it's the status quo isn't working for me or serving me, or it might be more like, kind of okay but yeah I've always had this little niggle in the back of my mind maybe a dream or a what if or a possibility we'll entertain it and I think adults have got very much to the point where it's like oh no no that's childish you know you're supposed to stay you're supposed to be committed you're supposed to accept the things they are and maybe it's about a playfulness of mind thinking what if I could change it and 
what if I just imagined it? And I think maybe even as adults, the idea that we might want something is really dangerous. Because then if we articulated we wanted it, then it, we've got the problem of thinking, well, do I want to do something about it? And do I have the means to do about it? And, you know, maybe I don't have the means or I don't have the energy right now. But now I've maybe made myself frustrated because I wasn't thinking about that before. So it creates a kind of tension and it's part of that tension. I know that I create that intention inherently for myself and I need to resolve it. And I think for many people, they might not sit well with it tension not because it's the tension itself it's because they don't necessarily see a way forward to resolve it which is probably you know a long way of saying why self-unlimited exists because it's a framework for exploring where might be those points of tension and how might you explore them for an answer and not because oh Helen gave me the exact answer I mean one of the things I say about self-unlimited it's not like be like Helen and it's very clearly branded self-unlimited not you know, Helen Palmer, you know, changes the way of work or something, because I want each individual to find their own version of it. So at one point, you might say, well, it is be like Helen in that Helen made some choices for herself about what she wanted her workscape to be. But your choices might be very different than mine. And so I'm offering sort of a higher level of advice and framework for exploring what that is. But I'm offering more the question, not the answer. And that in that question, if you're willing to open yourself up to it and explore, you might arrive at a very different answer than what the answer would be for me. And I would celebrate with you that you found an answer that was right for you, where you were at at this moment in time, with your resources, with your background, with your context. Yeah, exactly. And I, I sometimes wonder it's, it's the experiences we have that can allow that to be either you know, pollinated. And yes. before you were talking about, you know, you're the bee that goes and takes the nectar. Though bees also cross-pollinate. So they, they mm. take, but they drop off. And um, I kind of sort of think that, um, you know, you're someone who does share a lot of knowledge in that space as well. And perhaps you're experienced, you know, you're quite happy to adapt and adjust, but you've also had experiences of change that, you know, have kind of moved you on. And before, mm. one of the things you did talk about and I bring it sometimes because people go, oh, what were those key turning points in your life? Or, you know, what was it when the light globe went off? And, um, you know, just earlier today, I was watching a video of someone who's an expert in his field. And he said, the moment I knew I wanted to do this was when my mentor did X and I saw the outcome. And I said, oh, I want that. And I kind of go, well, not all of us have that. No, I'm envious. I want those moments. How this, exactly, when I hear stories like that, part of me thinks, I want those. That yeah, might happen to me. Give me my moment. Give me my moment. <laughs> so instead of the light glow, yeah. my uh, question to you is if you think back, um, if you think back and you scale through in the back of your mind those cumulative small moments that have kind of possibly nudged you or made you consider the questions yeah. like, oh, there's another way or, oh, oh, really, I could do that. Um, you know, have a think of those and maybe share with us, you know, one of those moments that, you know, cross-pollinated possibility within you. Yeah. I was reflecting because before this, you'd asked me a few broader questions that I might, you know, reflect on stories to bring to our conversation today. And I was thinking, what are those moments? And as you said, I 
they are small, which makes it really difficult retrospectively to identify them. And they're cumulative, which it's almost like at a certain point where a whole bunch of them accumulated that I might be able to see. So I'm potentially wandering into territory here where I'm putting a story on backwards, telling about it of what actually happened, but that's not necessarily how it was at the moment of time. So putting that aside, I do recognize a couple of moments where a person entered my life and said something that created a possibility. And so while books were one level that was opening up a world to me, I think something about a person who was trusted, who was in the inner circle of maybe my family, because particularly because of the religious uh, connotations, there was very much a strong sense of what was uh, spiritual and good religious advice and what was secular and potentially bad advice. So my the people that could share something or cut into that narrative with something alternative were few and far between. And there was one woman who um, I knew in those circles who had come across the Myers-Briggs and she gave me one of the books from the Myers-Briggs. Now, putting aside the fact that it's not scientifically validated, it can be a very useful framework for exploring your personality. And I remember reading this book and seeing in there that there was this personality type, and I'm going to name what it is, but not that people need to categorize me, but it said INTJ. And it turns out INTJ is one of the rarest of this kind of types. But as I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's me. And where I'd been existing in an environment where it's like, I feel strange. I don't feel normal. I don't seem to be like other people around me. At a point where I'm forming my identity, there's probably a lot of energy being wasted, kind of feeling like, who am I? How can I be in the world? What should I do? Particularly when you're 17, 18 and people are asking questions like, what are you going to be when you grow up and you leave high school? I had no idea. I had no plan. So, you know, I wasn't one of those people who was like, yes, it was very clear and focused from, you know, early ages. I had that light bulb moment. I was going to be this. So I made a plan. I took all the steps. I've never had a, <laughs> a career experience like that in all of my years. But one of the things this did was gave me the possibility of there are people out there in the world who identify with this INTJ type who probably are not in my circle of friends here. And oh my goodness, I'm not alone. So one of those moments was about recognizing I'm not alone. There are people who may think like me and value the things like me. I might not just have met them yet, but thank goodness there's a possibility they exist. Around that similar time, there was another related one because growing up in the environment I grew up in, university was off the table. And um, despite the fact being that I had high intelligence, um, my last year at high school, I was in the top maths class. There were five boys, two girls. We were in a, living at that stage in a rural town of New Zealand, about population 10,000. It turned out the five boys all went to university. And Janine and I, we went to work. I went to work in the local accountant's office. She went to work at the bank because that's what good girls were from working class families in a rural town with high math skills did. And so I remember just before, and I finished school on the Thursday. I was 17 in two months and I started, I'm sorry, finished school on the Wednesday. I started my job in the accountant's office on the Thursday. So I just went straight from school to work. None of this gap year business, having a long holiday, going off to university. But around that time, before that, I remember somebody asking me, oh, how long will you go to university? And my mother cut off the conversation and said that, you know, that was a bad thing and good Christian girls 
she did it a bit more unpleasantly than I'm going to say on a recording, but basically good Christian girls didn't go to university. So that just in my mind shut down that conversation. And I remember about six months later, I was walking down the street at lunchtime, ran into one of my teachers and he's like, Helen, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what, what do you mean? What am I doing here? He goes, um, it's, you know, the middle of the year. Why aren't you at university? And I'm like, why would I be at university? And he stopped me. Oh my goodness. Did you not know that you could go to university? And it's like, well, no. And, you know, it, it had never been suggested, even by the school, nor my family. And so this teacher was incredibly apologetic that he hadn't put it there. Now, you might think, oh, so the story goes to, so now Helen had that possibility. She quit her job and she ran off to university. No, no not at all. It was it took a few more moments over time when somebody suggested university. And in fact, it actually took until I was 24 years of age. I was married, had been re married for one year. And the conversation came up where a recruiter basically said, now, Helen, if you're thinking career-wise forward, you are hitting a ceiling of X amount of dollars and you are hitting a ceiling of X amount of things. Now, clearly you have skills and you can take on responsibility and do things, but you're never going to get any further without a university degree. At which point, you know, I came home and had a chat to my husband and he went, well, why don't you quit your job? and go to university, we can figure out how to make this work, which, you know, at the time in my family culture, I'm in my mid-20s, this is the point where you're settling down, this is where you're buying a house, you're thinking about having children, but in the conversation with my partner, I was like, oh no, that's not what we're talking about, we're talking about Helen quitting her job, and going off to university for a number of years, so these things happen, but in weird kind of ways, where it wasn't an immediate turnaround and as you said there's a kind of cumulative effect where it might have happened but it looked, took another conversation with somebody else a few years later and then a conversation with somebody else a few years later like it was building up to oh that's mm. a real possibility now mm, exactly so at that point but I kind of sit there and I go what is it that still allows you to be able to you know turn your head towards that possibility whereas others might go oh I don't have a shy away mm. but so you move forward and, and that's the thing I sometimes wonder about and then I wonder because sometimes it's like well what's the support around me that helps me be able mm. to do the things I do so so you know in your career and over those bits what have been those supports or those people that have been the the key support to sort of keep driving or nudging or believing in you Robert, the husband slash partner, who's now my business partner, has been a key one. And as I just said in that story, he was a person who um, had known me for a number of years before we got married. But the fact, you know, most people don't expect that in the first year of a married uh, couple's married life, that there's a conversation going, should I quit my job and go to university? And I didn't raise it. He was the one who raised it. And so you know, so that's been quite indicative of my entire relationship with him. He's kind of like, well, why not? And I'm kind of like, well, so I was ready for the status quo example, but he's like, why not? And so he's been a key person in my life when maybe there's a niggle of something going on and I've not even necessarily been prepared to entertain it in any substantive way. And in his mind, he's kind of, well, why not? And so he's also very good at having the hypothetical conversation, which 
uh, I remember um, having trying to have those hypothetical conversations with my mother and that was just not her personality. So there's something about Robert creating not only uh, the conversational space, but almost the cognitive space to, well, let's just play through this hypothetically. And that we, and in some ways, it's maybe speaks to my design sensibility. It's like, we could design what this could be. No commitment required. We don't actually have to do it. And it, it comes back to what I was also saying before, that how I think adults stop having that possibility conversation or of wanting something and you think if what if you could want something and you disconnected the notion of needing to get it or needing to achieve it or needing to do anything but just simply want and it, it makes me think of a, a time when my nephew was 10 years of age and we were living in different countries and i was talking to him on the phone because it was his birthday coming up soon and so i asked him what do you want well, he had a whole list. It filled up an entire conversation. And I could hear my sister in the background going, Auntie Helen's not getting that for you. And then when she got on the phone to say, you don't have to get him all of those things. And it made me think, what is it about childhood? Because, you know, he was 10 at that point. I could fast forward to when he turned 17 and people would say, you know, what would you like to do with your life? And he might be, I have no idea. And I think, well, if we're always saying, you're not allowed to want. You're not allowed to ask for those things. And it, it struck me about how as, you know, 10-year-old, he had this very long list. And for me, it was fascinating as an aunt who lived in another country. I don't mm. have my own children, so I leveraged my connections with my nieces and nephews. How much he had this list of wanting. Now, I did not hold him to that. That was just where his mind was exploring in that moment. But, yeah, it struck me how much as adults we've shut down that capacity to want or explore wants because we mm. tie it to... If I don't get it, then I might be disappointed. Or if I entertain the getting it, I've then got to show up and do something and be adult and growing up and, you know, make plans to have it happen. But yeah, where is that wanting? Just mm. the pure desire of exploring and wanting. Well, I think that's an interesting thing within itself because one of the things you said, and, I, and when I talk to younger people um, who are probably between 18 and 25 and they're kind of sitting there going, I don't quite know. Like, I don't have any idea. I don't know what to do. Mm. Um, so what would your advice be to someone in that situation? Try something. Don't. I think that we, we've got uh, too much narrative around a passion, a purpose, a mission. And I personally do not connect to that. So if you're somebody who's listening who does, I would say to you as the sovereign of your self-unlimited, you go with that. I mean, that's part of the self-unlimited framework. If passion and mission and purpose is language that speaks to you, you go for it. Mm. I'm not one of those people. I've never had it. But there may be some people listening going, Helen, you sound very passionate while you're talking about this. And I've known you to be passionate. But I've not had a sense of like, here I am now. I'm looking to the future and I have a passion that's driving me. There's never been anything like that. There's never been that light bulb moment. This is what I want. All I can say that from my own experience is I tried something. I took a step. And in taking that step, well, nothing nothing bad happened. I didn't die. The world didn't stop. So it might be then I took another step. And when I look at the few moments in life where I might have tried to be intentional and go in a certain direction, it feels like life had other plans for me and that my intentions struck disappointment or obstacles where when I've been more let me be present let me just take one step and see where that lets me it's kind of like take a step stop have a look around how's this feeling seems okay seems like it's doing something I'll take another step and that has been more 
I believe, organic to the notion of a journey through unknown territory. It's when people try to say, I'm not going to take a step until I can see the map. I need to see the map. I need to see where all the hills are. I need to see where all the paths are. And then somebody needs to point out which is the best path or the optimal path or the right path to get somewhere. And I've never understood that. I've never connected to it. It doesn't seem to me mm. a natural way to approach something that's inherently unknowable. And so mm. if there's something that can drive you from the present, you might think, um, I have an interest in music and people go, Oh, don't worry about music. There's no money in music. You should be something else. I would think, well, just take that music interest and do something with it because two things could happen. One, it might actually have some uh, serendipitous factor of just opening up your creativity. Hmm. But the second factor is who knows in a world of changing jobs, who knows what music hooked in with writing, hooked in with podcasting, hooked in with something else could actually turn into something that does not currently exist as a job or a way of earning income. But the fact that you took a step into it and you were open to it, it could turn into something. So there's a kind of letting go of what are that, what is the knowable stuff and just take a step forward and you can de-risk it. If it's like, oh, I don't know if I could take a big step. That's fine. Take a small step. Whatever you decide is a small step, and it might be simply, I'm going to look at something online and read it. And there's kind of a point where you might think, oh, that wasn't a big step. Well, if that was the only step you could take, that's fine. Because who knows, that article might just sow a seed. And that seed might not even be conscious or it might not lead you anywhere. Simply take a step, a small step, and be very mindful in that in taking the steps, just to kind of check in with yourself. And that speaks, I think, to the other part that you and I have talked about before, that inner voice. If your inner voice is going, no, stop, don't go in that direction, well, listen to it and don't go in that direction. And, and don't feel that you have to have the logic that, oh, I need to explain why I'm not going in that direction. If it does not feel right to you, honor that intuition and stop and maybe try something in a different direction. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I suppose what is useful is having someone like Robert who's there prodding the questions and yes. support on the side makes a big difference mm. um, and it's, it's value. So um, it's always good for people to consider, well, who's your support crew at any yes. point in time? Because I, there's this beautiful quote that I love and I seem to quote it a lot. <laughs> and uh, Lately, I seem to quote it a lot because, you know, everyone's in a swirling space Yes, and moving at different rates, but um, and it comes back to this idea of community as well as serving others. Is there's an Irish quote, quote, and it says, "Together you may go fast, but no, alone you may go fast, but together we go far." And I think, oh, I, I like that. that. Yeah, it sums up. God, the Irish have a heap of that stuff. Well, Robert's actually Irish descent, so his great-grandfather was from Limerick, so maybe there's something of the Irish coming through. Ah, beautiful. Something um, I should say, too, is that people might be thinking, oh, I wish I could have a Robert. You know, Helen's got it sorted just because she's got a Robert. I'm going to put a bit of another side on it here. Robert is not useful in all situations. So, for example, Robert and I had this standing joke. Robert doesn't do pride. So if there's something that goes on and I go, are you proud of me? His response is, you know, I don't do pride. You, yeah, well, that's what you're capable of doing. So this is all to a point of one of the ideas I have in Self Unlimited is to have a professional village around you. So Robert is good for some things 
and he's not good for other things. So there have been other people in my life who have been my cheerleading squad or my um, prepared to talk through the details or something. And so it's about having a few of those people around you, not just thinking that you just need the one person. Because, yeah, it's, it's one of these things, as I say, Robert doesn't do pride. So if I want somebody to go, yay, Helen, well done, you hit that out of the park, that's amazing. Robert's never going to give it to me. And that's after 28 years of marriage. I've come to accept. I'm just not going to get pride from Robert. <laughs> and, and maybe that's an interesting point for many people in relationships that, you know, either partner, whether it's you or your partner, you yes. can't get, you're not everything and anything, you know. Indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so find other sources. Um, so that's interesting because when I say, well, what are the other things that, you know, because running a business, and showing up every day, uh, particularly to create and recreate and, and get out there and move and shake, it's, it, it's um, something that doesn't come naturally to many people to keep, you know, getting up mm. and doing that is another way, another solution. So my question for you is how, how do you support yourself and more importantly, particularly around the self-care piece? And the reason why I ask that is, you know, because I also know your experience working with teams and people in organisations and um, while there's a lot of focus on getting things done and, you know, connecting these, you know, given the acceleration of how mm. the pace and rate and, and um, level of achievement we're having to do now between work and home and all those other aspects, you know, human development and growth and learning, mm. there's a lot. So how, what do, how, how do you go about looking after yourself? First of all, I acknowledge that it's necessary. <laughs> I think for some people, there's a sense, particularly when I spoke about the notion of service. So one of the things that I learned in the Christian environment was this notion of, um, they use the word acronym JOY, Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. And that was a very strong notion about that's how the service went. I've kind of had to unpack that and come back to, well, more like what we hear when we're on planes and the uh, flight stewards are telling us, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And I've come to appreciate that self-care is not selfish. If the work that I do is coming through the physicality, through the emotionality, through the psychology of me, this is my vessel, um, my uh, workspace in some ways, that needs to be in good condition. And if I'm not taking in good condition of it, it's not able to do what it's to do, just from a practical delivery point of view, but also in terms of the flow through that of me and that you know because things like emotions for example are very contagious so if I'm in a highly stressed out state and I'm advising people or writing something the contagion factor of what I might write will pick up on that stressed out state so it's about being mindful first of all self-care is not selfish and it's an important thing to do and I've made that a very strong tenant of my work particularly maybe because I purposely had to unlearn it around that notion of serving and community. So it's probably come out quite strongly. And many people who know me when we're working together, I'm quite strong on those boundaries. And, and those boundaries actually get very practical down to, right, I will or won't, and this is part of the rules notion of self-unlimited, I won't do work at the weekends. Now, I could do work at the weekends and working my own business, but I've decided for that self-care becomes tangible and real by saying it's what work is what happens between Monday 9 a.m. and Friday 6 p.m. 
Now, some people might go, oh, but you know, I felt creative on Sunday afternoon. You do what's right for you. That was the rule for me. There may be something where I do feel creative on a Sunday afternoon and I might capture something, but what the deal I've made with myself is capture it on a piece of paper, take it to my office space that's my work, open the door, put it on the desk, close the door and walk away. And that there's a sense where it can come, the, the ideas and the creativity isn't going to always come through between those business hours. But if it does, that's not an excuse to distract myself and go into work. And it's too easy to kind of go that way. And it's funny because we'll, we'll let the pool take us that way, but we won't let the pool take us the other way where we might think, well, it's Tuesday afternoon. Oh, it's business hours. Oh, I've got to be working. I might sometimes think, oh, I just don't have it in me right now. I'm going to go find my book. I'm going to make a cup of tea and I'm just going to take that time off. So there's an element of recognizing that if I put a rule in for myself, it's my rule to break, but I do it knowingly. And that's even from the point of view of educating others as well. In fact, I had somebody who was texting me last Saturday morning and it started out as a personal call and then it started getting work. And then they went, oh, sorry, I'm breaking your rule. I thought, well, nice that you're aware of it. I'm breaking your rule of talking about work. And I said, well, actually, it's not your rule to break. It's my rule to break. And I'm okay with this because we're actually talking about your work, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that notion of where are the structures or habits that you need, but making the choice for yourself. There's going to be plenty of people who will tell you, you should do this. And I look and think, how about you phrase, we phrase that as, here is a variety of possibilities that could work for you. Pick the ones that work for you. Now, I'm very fortunate in that I have a house that's large. I can have a whole room set aside to be my workspace. I don't have children. So there's a number of things that I can set up that work for me that might not work for people who are listening. It's about sitting aside and saying that time. If I think self-care is important to me, what does that translate into, given my financial considerations, given my home situations, given even the temperature? <laughs> You know, I might be stuck inside a house or an apartment, but making those choices for yourself. And then having said it's a priority, if those are my choices, then live them and be honest and with yourself about aligning to them. Mm. I look at, you know, it's what we might call that very old fashioned word of being disciplined. Mm. So, you know, when people might say, you know, how is it you're doing stuff? There's an element where I'm disciplined in what I do. But I'm not only disciplined in the doing of the work, I'm disciplined in the not doing of the work. Because if I don't give that equal discipline, then it will be a luxury item, it will get ignored and won't be given the priority that it needs. Well, and I know talking about priorities, you have a big backyard. Yes. <laughs> and there's lots of bits and pieces in that, and some things need more priorities than others. How much time do you spend in that space? Well, my big backyard, as you facetiously say, is two and a quarter acres uh, in the Macedon Ranges. And backyard is a generous term for something that's on a slope with a lot of bush, uh, of which I enjoy, uh, she says, with a smirk on her face, the company of many native animals. Uh, some are my friends and some are not my friends. In terms of the time, there's an element where... I'm doing different things. And this is kind of where maybe it speaks to my sensibility of my personality. I look and think, oh, weeds, they need pulling. Yeah, it's just maintenance stuff. But there's something I look and think, I'll go out and do it because it's like all I have to do is see the weed, pull the weed. 
boy, that's easy. That didn't need a lot of thinking. And so it might be that I spend a couple of hours just pulling weeds out. And people might think that's boring. And there is an element where there is part of me that thinks, yes, Helen, you know, when interested works well. I'm not really interested in the weed pulling. But after the weed pulling, there's a point where I look and think, I don't actually think there was a conscious thought that went through my brain for the last two hours, except seaweed, pull weed. And I recognize that there's an element of that where my hands get busy. I reckon there's even something about my, well, they're in, my hands are in gloves because we're in spider territory here in Australia and ants. But, you know, touching the earth, that it kind of is literally grounding me that, you know, that it's got its own benefit. And all I need to do is kind of seaweed, pull weed. And I don't, I can operate in a very different way. Because of that disciplined nature and some of the work I do, I can be very structured. This is gonna happen in this sequence. When I'm outside in the garden, much the frustration of Robert, I'll start one little thing and then I'll get distracted and I'll go and do something else and then I'll get distracted and after a couple of hours there might be an array of tools around the place and he's like, couldn't you have just finished one job before you started the other? I'm like, no, because there's something very nice that while I'm outside, I don't have to worry about finishing a job or wrapping it up or <laughs> it being completed. It's entirely up to me whether I see that weeded or unweeded. So there's that kind of maintenance aspect. But the other part that is more the joy to me is the landscape design aspect where I look and think, mm, I don't really like that section over there. How could I change it? Well, and then there's, there's a, this actually speaks to a, a key value of me, resourcefulness. How could I change it with the constraints of my energy and labour, Robert's energy and labour, which he's not necessarily <laughs> willing to contribute, and the money I might have or the things we have on the property. Mm. So it becomes a multifaceted creative thing to change this piece of landscape, uh, you know, whether it's about shaping the land or putting rocks on it or putting a garden in it. Uh, with all of those kind of constraints and so as to the number of hours I think it's more the quality of the hours that are there than the quantity of the hours whereas if, if it was like many many hours out there mowing the lawn which I don't actually do Robert does <laughs> then there'd be a point where like eh, that that there there that's not enjoyable at all that's just really maintenance stuff that needs to happen yeah so and and that's interesting because there's sometimes the maintenance and there's sometimes the, but with um and, you know, and I think over this whole conversation, we've learned that, you know, you've got your Maori background, you um, had a growing up in quite a Christian community, you've had opportunities, you've built computers, mm -hmm. um, some people wouldn't know that you actually have taught in Japan and lived over mm -hmm. there. Like such a re really rich life, which I would say, given a lifetime of self living in a self-unlimited way, what is it that you come to really value? Like in a nutshell, what is the thing you come to value about um, the life you've cultivated? That it's a choice I can make at any moment in time about what will happen next. And a, probably a good example of that and, and something that people who may be hearing this weren't aware, uh, back in February, a friend reached out from the United Nations and Rome and said, hey, potential opportunity, are you interested? I find this email, I get off to Robert and go, hey, guess what's in this email? What do you think? And within an hour, Robert and I had a conversation with, well, one of these hypotheticals, well, we could do this, we could sell the house, we could do that. This is what would happen to the business. And within an hour, we reached a point where let's keep moving forward with this. 
Now, of course, this opportunity <laughs> fell through because of COVID, but the mere fact that something arrived on my plate that people might think, oh, you're of a certain kind of age, you've got a house and a property to look after and a business. These are all reasons why something wouldn't happen. But the fact that I can go, something can arrive, an opportunity or an offer, we can take even just an hour to contemplate what if. And when we walk through some of these decisions, I mean, there's almost a point where, given that you heard me say before that we've lived in this house for 10 years and I'm ready to go on, I was almost ready to start packing the suitcases to, to get on the plane to Rome. Um, <laughs> I mean, I literally mean that. There was an element where like, oh, something exciting to go towards. But I do, and even while it's fallen through, one of the things I'm really proud about is we could contemplate that something could arrive on that wasn't because some people might go yeah but what about your business weren't you wasn't that going on a certain kind of path you need to see that through to some kind of completion but the mere fact that it's like whatever things are right now something new could arrive unexpectedly and it could be contemplated it could be thought through and it could be a possibility and I will always have the decision to say yes or no and it doesn't have to be a binary no don't go to Rome keep doing what you're currently doing or yes go to Rome give up what you were doing we were actually able to craft it how about a let's go to Rome and keep doing what I'm doing combination and we were able to have that conversation and figure out a possibility now not in the sense of like well we have a clear plan and you know it's all documented in Microsoft project or something with all the tasks it was a point where I was starting to get, get ready to do that but just enough to kind of say I can hold that possibility and I could take a step in that direction. And it was interesting because my friend in Rome at different times reached out and said, look, I'm really sorry. I don't want to, you know, over um, uh, build up your expectations. It could all fall through because of the pandemic. And I said to her, look, it's okay. I get that it could fall through, but I'm working from the point of view, I'll just take a step in that direction and I'll take a step in a few other directions at the same time. Maybe I'm the three-legged person but we'll just keep going and we'll see what we'll see. And it's enabled a stress-free way of navigating the future. I don't have to think, oh, I have to have the answer. I needed to have figured it out. I needed to have weighed up the pros and cons and, and um, be really clear about things. No, it was just a possibility. So that's the thing I'm most proud about. Uh, such wisdom as, uh, you know, at this point in your life, which leads me to steal a question from one of our um, Australian favourite uh, interviewees, um, who not everyone will know listening to this, Julie Zamiro. Um, what's the one piece of advice that you would tell your younger self? What would I tell my younger self? Be careful who you listen to. Because there are plenty of people who want to give you the gift of their advice. And when you're younger, and particularly when you've maybe not yet formed up what your view is, it can be kind of like, oh, really? Oh, you look like you're smart and you've got the answer. That must be it. And that kind of notion like there's a single answer. And if you just found the right person and they all back to you, the way, they just had that light bulb moment. And, and so, you know, there was a point where I wasted energy and time thinking, I'm supposed to have a light bulb moment, a light bulb, where's my light bulb moment? I'm not having a light bulb moment. Is there something wrong with me? And so being able to relax and go, okay, some people will advocate for a light bulb moment. Some people may get a light bulb moment. Probably the people who are advocating for a light bulb moment were people who got a light bulb moment, but that's not everybody. And so just being able to relax and say, there's plenty of advice out there. 
plenty of people will show up as if it's the advice, it's the right advice. But it's take what is what may, and it's not even you might know it works for you, just try something and just relax and ease into it rather than thinking, oh my goodness, I've got to get it right. If I don't get this right, I'm going to be a failure and then it's going to be terrible. Just try some of the things that you hear and be kind to yourself and say, it's not necessarily the right thing. It's a thing. Let me try it out and it may work for me. It may not and ease into it. Sound advice for the young Helen as she was growing up then. Oh, oh there would have been a lot of angst removed and uh, stress yeah. relieved if that had been how I was living. Indeed, for all of us. Um, as we navigate our life with curiosity, um, knowing that there's a chance to create possibility and inject it into um, whichever directions we uh, tend to fly or move through. So any last comments before we wrap up for your self-unlimited family? No, I'm intrigued by the things that you got out of me in this conversation. So I think it was great to do the kind of reverse mic. So thank you for uh, being part of this improvisational journey with me and being that person who asks these questions and part of this conversation. As always, Helen, I'm a partner in playfulness. So, <laughs> Indeed, I love it. I love it, a partner in playfulness. <laughs> so as, as a person who can celebrate my pride with me too. So thank yes, you. Exactly. Robert doesn't have to do that. And yes. uh, he may never put herbs on his pizza either, which I've learnt to as well. So, <laughs> um, so and I would say, end up saying thanks for our um, chat today and letting me ask you the curious questions. Um, and thanks for bringing Self Unlimited to the community because I, I love the fact that there's a fresher way to consider what's possible, um, which is great. So thanks, Helen. Oh, my pleasure. And I hope that some of the things that I've shared have maybe given a greater insight to why Self Unlimited is the way it is. It's even made me think, yes, how much of that was intentional and how much of that was unconscious? So there's been a gift for me in just re reflecting too. So thank you. You're welcome. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com and follow us on Twitter at Be Self Unlimited.